Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a couple of weeks um, that we have not had this year. We took a break for the month of Tishrei, but now, Baruch Hashem, we're back. And thank you all for being here. And it is a pleasure to study Torah with you together. And a great zechus, one which, one which I take very seriously. This week is, of course, Parshas Noyach. And we did not have a chance to study together last week in this format. Parshas Bereshis, as I mentioned in Shul, uh, covers about the first one and a half thousand years of existence in the world. So off the bat, the Torah rushes through one and a half thousand years. Um, the Parsha of Bereshis, of course, tells us about Hashem creating the world. But the Parsha concludes with saying that Hashem was displeased. Um, in fact, the exact wording of the Pasuk is, Vayinochem Hashem. Which, which can translate to mean that God changed his mind or, or regretted, uh, you know, what it is that he had done. And uh, disaster ensues. In Parshas Noyach, of course, the Rabboni Shlolem Almighty God brings that famous flood. Vayimach is kol hayukum. Pretty much all of existence is obliterated, is annihilated. Um, all of humanity, all of animal life, pretty much all of vegetation, um, everything besides for fish. Um, and Noach and his family, there are, there are eight human beings. Um, there's Noach and his wife, there's Noach's three sons, Shem, Chom, Yefes, and their wives, um, and, and animals, representatives of every species of the animal kingdom um, is to be found in Tevas Noach, in Noach's Ark. They survive. According to the Medrash, an animal that was tied to the Teva, all right, not for now. According to a different Medrash, survived. But other than that, everything else is, is annihilated, is wiped out. Noyach is in the Teva. Noyach and his family and the animals are in the Teva for approximately a year. After a year, Hashem tells him to leave. He leaves and he, he emerges um, into a very different world than the one he left. Okay. Um, Hashem promises that he's never going to bring another flood, the likes of which took place in the days of Noach. Hashem says, I'm never going to do that again. Um, and he puts the rainbow in the sky as an eternal promise, as an eternal icon of Hashem's oath, that this will never happen again. And um, Hashem makes this clear to, to Noach. And what I want to study together with you a couple of verses inside, because right after the story of the Mabel, the story of the flood, and the survivors of the flood, right after the Torah concludes that, the Torah tells another story. Um, the story of the flood is told very uncharacteristically of the Torah. Um, it's told at great length, um, with many details, many parts of it, Many parts of the story, in fact, are, are repeated many times. Um, and of course, there's, there's much in the commentary as to why, but that's very uncharacteristic of the way the Torah tells stories. Right after the story of the flood, there's another story which is atypical, uh, very typical of, of the way the Torah tells stories. Um, of course, the purpose of that is not just the story, but, but it's written in, in the story form. And I want to study it with you today um, and delve into some of the, the elements of it. I'm starting from the beginning of the sixth aliyah, the beginning of Shishi. In the Chomoshim, it's Perak Tes, Posek Yudches. 
says the Torah, the sons of Noach that had emerged with him from the Teva, were shame v'chav v'yefes. Again, this is something repeated by the Torah a few times in this parsha. Noach goes in and comes out of the Teva with his three sons. Their names are shame, chom, and yefes. And here the Torah adds, v'chom hu avi knan. Chom is the father of Canaan. It does not mean that, that Chom is the father of Canaan before the Teva, before the flood. Before the flood, uh, Shem, Chom, and Yefes did not have any children, uh, to the best of my understanding. Their children were, were all born to them after uh, the flood. So one of the sons, here the Torah tells us that one of the sons born to Chom after the flood is a young man by the name of Canaan. The Torah will get into more details about this later. In a couple of Pesukim, the Torah will give some very specifics about the genealogy and the bloodline of Noach. Um, in fact, Chom has four sons. Their names are Cush, uh, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan, many of whom play a very important role in history in general um, and in Jewish history specifically, right? Cush, of course, is the father of the famous Nimrod, who was the one who eventually throws Avroma Binun to a furnace of fire. Uh, Mitzrayim, of course, uh, is, is, is the original ancestor of, of everything and all people Egyptian. Um, and here, Kush Mitzrayim put a Canaan. Here the Torah mentions that Chom had a son called Canaan. On the surface, it's not clear why the Torah is just throwing that in now, right? The sons of Noach came out of Teva, Shem Chom and Yefes. Chom is the father of Canaan. That's not relevant to Shem Chom and Yefes leaving the Teva. That becomes relevant later when Chom starts to have children like his brothers. But the Torah throws it in. These three, Shem Chom and Yefes, were the sons of Noach. And from these three, Shem Chom and Yefes, the world is repopulated. All of humanity is, emerges. From Shem Chom and Yefes, because in other words, we all of us, all eight billion human beings on planet Earth in 2022, are all descendants of Shem Chom and Yefes because every other human being or every other every other person, every other human being and every other animal that wasn't in the Teva was 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 obliterated, and and, and perished during the flood. Okay, next, here comes the story. Vayochal Noyach Noach, the man of the land, Noach, the man of the ground, um, defiles himself, debases himself, according to Rashi. Vayita Korem, and he planted a vineyard. A vineyard grows grapes. When you squeeze grapes, you get wine. Uh, wine, the, 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 the juice from grapes, once it ferments, it turns in, into alcohol. Vayesht minayayin, Noach consumes, he drinks from the wine by Yishkor, and he gets intoxicated. He gets inebriated. He gets drunk. And he's rolling around in his tent. Like a drunken, like if you've ever seen a drunken individual, you'll know that that's what drunken people do. They get drunk. And once they get to a point where they're no longer uh, conscious of themselves at all, you'll often find them lying on the floor, either uh, you know, asleep or just in a drunken stupor, and uh, they roll around, as people do in general while they're, while they're asleep, but definitely in a drunken sleep, they're rolling around uncontrollably, and uh, they have no control over themselves, they have no sense of themselves at all. Vayar, says the Pasuk, 
Chom Aviknan. The first person to see him, to see, to see him. Again, at least in, in the literal meaning of the pesukim, Bayar Chom Aviknan. Chom, Noach's middle son, the one whom the Torah has just identified as being the father of Canaan, sees him. Sees his father. He sees a ervas of him. He sees the nakedness of his father. He runs outside and he tells his two brothers, Shem and Yefes, one older, one, one younger. He tells them that his, the father is drunk and that he's rolling around. At this point, the understanding is that he's rolling around without clothing. That's why the Torah refers to it as the nakedness of his father. He hasn't just seen his father drunk. He's seen his father drunk and naked. Okay. The other brothers, they take a garment, they take the, the, some form of a blanket. They put it on their shoulders. They walk backwards. They cover the nakedness of their father. While their faces are facing backwards. They do not see the nakedness of their father. Posuk Chavdalid, Vayiketz Noach Miyeno Noach wakes up from his wine. He wakes up from his drunkenness. Vayeda Eisasher Osoloi Benoach Koton. He becomes aware. He's knowledgeable. He knows of that which his youngest, his young son, his little son, has done. Vayoymer and he says, "Quote Oror Knan, cursed be Knan." Knan again is Noach's grandson, the son, the fourth son of Chom. May he be a slave to his brothers. continues and says, May God, the God of shame, be blessed. Again, may Knan be a slave to him. May God be gracious. May, good, may, be, may God be good to Yefes. Even as he lives in the tents of, tents of shame. And again, Knan should be a slave also to, to Yefes. The Torah concludes by saying that Noach lived till the age of 950, at which point Noach passes on. So the story in, in, in brief is that Noach plants a vineyard, squeezes the grapes, makes wine, gets drunk, says a little too much l'chaim. He is lying on the floor rolling around. He is seen by Chom, who sees his father drunk and naked. Chom tells his brothers, his brothers cover Noach while walking backwards, facing backwards with a garment, not seeing the nakedness of their father. Noach wakes up, becomes aware of what has happened, curses Canaan that he should be a slave. Three times, Noach says, that Canaan should be a slave. First time he says he should be a slave to his brothers. He, he blesses shame and Yefes, the other two brothers, his, his other two sons, and once again reiterates that Canaan, his grandson, should be a slave for his two sons. All right, this is the story. The first obvious question here is what in heaven's name does Canaan have to do with the story? That's the first, that's the first most obvious question. Canaan is mentioned one, two, 
three, four, five times in the story. Command's, command's name is mentioned five times in the story. When if you read the story, at least on the surface, Canaan was not part of the story at all. Yes, Canaan was the fourth son of Chom, which Chom is Noach's middle son. The Torah has not even gotten to that yet. Later on in, um, in, Perik, in Perik Yud, Posuk Vov, the Torah will say, B'nai, the, the sons of, of Chom were Kush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Chom had four sons. The fourth one was Canaan, but, but that the Torah will say later. For some reason, the Torah makes Canaan a, 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 a central part of the story by telling us before the story even begins that Chom has a son called Canaan. Then when Chom walks into the tent and sees what's going on with Noach, Chom is referred to as, quote, Chom Avi Canaan, Chom the father of Canaan. And when Noach wakes up and realizes that he has been compromised in some form during his drunken stupor, the first thing he says is, Or Knan. First be Knan. May he be a slave to his brothers. And then as he, as he blesses his other two sons who respected him, Shem and Yephes, he repeats twice that Knan should be their slave. So what does Knan have to do with the story? Okay. So Rashi says, here, Rashi in Posuk of Beis says like this, when the Posuk says that Chom sees his father and refers to Chom as the father of Canaan, says Rashi, in, in beautiful Rashi style, in three words, Rashi sheds light in the Pshat of, of the whole story and sort of explains, uh, sort of explains everything at least on the Pshat level, gives you a, a simple answer that gives us great perspective. Rashi says like this. Rashi says, the first person that the Torah identifies as seeing Noyach in this compromised state was Chom. The Torah says, Vayar Chom. But Chom, says Rashi, wasn't really the first person who saw him. Really the first person who saw him was Canaan. Noach was seen by his grandson Canaan before he was seen by his son Chom. In fact, it was Canaan who got the whole, the whole thing rolling, who got the whole story going. He was the one who ran out of the tent and called his father Chom and told him what was going on. So inherently, Canaan is the one who's really responsible for this, uh, for this demoralizing and humiliating experience for Noach. Had Canaan, the grandson, had the menschlichkeit and the understanding and respect to treat his grandfather with respect, he would have seen what happened. He would have covered his grandfather, and that would have been the end of it. Nobody would, the Torah maybe would not have even told us the story. Vayar Chom Avi Canaan, says Rashi, the Torah tells us, no. Chom saw the father of Canaan, not just that he was the father of Canaan. He saw it because he was the father of Canaan. What's the fact that he's the father of Canaan? The fact that he saw it. Well, Canaan saw him first. And Canaan was the one who ran to tell his father Chom. Okay. Rashi, this Rashi says, that's the reason why Noach cursed him. When Noach woke up, Noach doesn't curse his son Chom. Noach curses his grandson Canaan. Or Canaan. Because Noach has the intuition, the Torah doesn't tell us how, but Noach has the intuition and the wisdom to know that Canaan was the first one. His, his anacle, his grandson Canaan, was the first one who, who got this, who got this mo moving in the wrong direction.
Okay. Um, what Rashi does not tell us is why, why the Torah chooses, in other words, okay, so, so Canaan was the one, uh, Canaan was the one who, who you know, who was, was the instigator, if you will, of the whole thing. Okay. But what Rashi doesn't tell us is, and Rashi says that's why he was cursed. But Rashi doesn't tell us why he's the only one who's cursed. In other words, yes, he's the instigator, but he, he isn't the troublemaker. In the Rashi, right after that, there's a very, very disturbing and, and difficult to read Rashi right after that. Rashi tells us what Chom actually did. Um, Chom, that is, again, the middle son of Noach, the father of Canaan. What he actually did, he didn't just see his father. The Torah just says that he saw. Rashi says that the, the commentators, the rabbis argued whether it, what actually Chom did, whether Chom was, was um, according to one opinion, Chom was physically intimate with his father. He had, he had intimate relations with him. Um, according to another opinion, it was even, according to another opinion, Chom actually removes the reproductive ability from, uh, from Noach. So Chom is not just looking, Chom is not just, is not a, just a witness. Chom goes in there and he, he, does, he, does, he does a terrible Avera, either he commits the sin um, of, of, um, of intimacy with, with a family member, in this case, with his own father, or he actually, Sirsai, Sirsai, according to some opinion, Sirsai means he removes from him the ability to reproduce. He, 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 uh, he castrated him in one form or another. And, and yet, Chom doesn't get cursed, at least not in the opening reading of the Pesukim, only Canaan. Rashi does not address that part of, of the story. Rashi does add another important element to the story before I, I want to move on to a different aspect of the story and then with Hashem's help come back. Rashi does give us another explanation as to why it was Canaan specifically who was cursed. Rashi says, you see, it's like this. Canaan is Chom's fourth son. Chom, again, the Torah will tell us later. Chom, Noach's middle son, has four sons. Cush, Cush will be the father of Nimrod, Mitzrayim, the ancestor of Mitzrayim, Put and Canaan, the one we're talking about. Noach himself only has three sons, Shem, Chom, and Yefes. Rashi says, after the flood was over, Noach, excuse me, Noach wanted to have more children. He was planning to have more children. After this story of him getting drunk in the tent, he does not have any more children. According to some opinions, this is because Chom removes from him, Chom sterilizes him, removes from him this ability. So Noyach tells his son Chom, you removed from me the ability to have a fourth son. Noyach says to Chom, I'm now going to curse your, your fourth son, Canaan, and make him a slave to his brothers. That's one of the explanations that Rashi gives that Rashi gives in the story. But again, no attention here is given, no cursing, no, no negative reaction here is given from Noach to Chom himself. In fact, when Noach does wake up from his drunken stupor, the Torah says, Noach wakes up from his sleep, and he knows he's aware, becomes aware, that which his young son has done to him. Now, who is the young son that's being referred to here? 
it's difficult, the, the commentaries argue about this. Is, is he referring to Chom? But Chom isn't Noach's youngest son. Chom is Noach's middle son. So why would the Torah refer to him as his, his, his small son because he's, he's younger than Shame, he's younger than the oldest son? It's, it's, he's the middle child. Or is, is the Torah perhaps saying that Noach is aware of what Canaan has done to him? Canaan is his grandson who would be called his youngest son because he's the youngest son of Chom, as I just mentioned. Either explanation is difficult to understand. If it's talking about Chom, why does it say B'noi HaKotten? Chom is not the youngest. And if it's talking about Canaan, why does it say Asher Osaloi? Canaan doesn't do anything. Canaan just goes, sees, and reports back to his father. All right, the commentaries argue, uh, argue over this back and forth. Okay, we'll get, I, I wanna get back to this issue about, about the, the unique role that Canaan plays here in, in this story. But first, a different, element, a, diff, a different element of the story. In describing what the two kosher brothers, the two tzaddik brothers, Shem and Yefes, how they react to their father, the Torah says that they grabbed hold of a garment, they put it on their shoulders, they walked backwards, um, they covered the nakedness of their father, and they faced backwards, and they don't see the nakedness of their father. It's a very wordy, it's a very wordy and, and seemingly redundant posuk. I'll read it again in, 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 in the Lashon of the posuk. The Torah says, They take the garment, they put it on their shoulders, they walk backwards, they cover the nakedness of their father, they face backwards, and they don't see the nakedness of their father. They walk backwards, they face backwards, they covered the nakedness, they didn't see the nakedness. I mean, the Torah seems to be repeating this again and again. You can say they covered their father, right? They, they, they covered their father. They didn't, they, they faced backwards, they didn't see his nakedness. No, they walked backwards, they faced backwards, they covered him, they didn't see, they... You know, they, they covered it, they didn't see it. It's, it. The Torah seems to be very repetitive. So there is a very well-known explanation um, based on, from the Hasidic Rebbes on this idea that the Torah says that they walked backwards, they faced backwards, and they didn't see the nakedness of their father. It's a very famous Hasidic explanation on this. The Hasidic explanation, as with many Hasidic explanations, is based on a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. So the Baal Shem Tov taught, the Baal Shem Tov taught, quote, If a person sees negativity, evil, if a person sees, uh, if a person sees darkness in a fellow, says the Baal Shem Tov, this is an indication, this is a proof, that some form of this negativity, evil, exists within he himself, the person who is looking. It's like a person who is looking in the mirror. If his own face is clean, he does not see any dirt in the mirror. It's one of the most, I don't know, one of the most famous, very, very famous teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, um, with, of course, tremendous psychological insight. And the Baal Shem Tov is basically inherently saying that we all go through life with a pair of glasses, uh, a pair of psychological, mental glasses, spectacles, a perspective. 
the glasses determine how we see the world, or in this case, how we see other people. And depending on the cleanliness of the glasses, depending on, depending on our own state of being, that will determine what it is that we see in others. So if we ourselves are clean, if we ourselves are pure, if we ourselves are, are innocent, then we will not see dirt and, and filth in others. We, we just won't see them that way. On the other hand, if when we look at people, we see their negativity, we see their dark sides, we see, we see evil and filth in other people, says the Baal Shem Tov, what's really going on is that you're really looking in a mirror. And as you look in the, into the other person and see their, their dark spots, what you're really seeing is a reflection of yourself. All right. Now, when you first hear it, it sounds amazing, right? Wow, look at that. So what I'm seeing in someone else is really a, ref a reflection of what's going on inside me. But then as you stop to think about it for a few minutes, it starts to seem like the Baal Shem Tov has taken it too far. In other words, yes, we understand that we each have perspective. We understand that our perspective on things is colored by our own experiences and by our own personality, etc. of course. But does the Baal Shem Tov really mean that if I have no evil inside myself, I will see no evil in others? Does the Baal Shem Tov really mean that? And if he does really mean that, that seems like a silly thing to say because the truth of the matter is, and some of us have learned this the hard way, there are really, really evil people out there, dangerously evil people out there, and they need to be stopped. And in order to stop them, they need to be identified. And in order to be identified, we need to be able to call the evil in people when we see it. So what does the Baal Shem Tov mean? If you were to be a tzaddik, then you would think everybody else is tzaddikim. If you think everybody else is tzaddikim, you're not going to be able to protect yourself from some very abusive, downright dangerous people out there. That's a very dangerous existence. Or, or the Lubavitcher Rebbe, when he was talking about this, he worded the question this way. He said, what do you mean? If there's negativity in someone else, he asked a question in the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. He said, if there's negativity in someone else that I become aware of, isn't it my, isn't it my responsibility by virtue of the fact that I become aware of it? Isn't it my responsibility wherever possible to go and help the person, to go and make them better, to go and fix them? So why would the Baal Shem Tov say that it's, it's just a reflection on, on, on the same kind of evil that exists within me. And that if I didn't have this evil within me, then I wouldn't see it in someone else. Why, why would the Baal Shem Tov say such a thing? And how far, the question really is, how far do we, do we take this idea? Okay. So the way they explain it, The way they explain it, and I'll give maybe my own my own analogy, uh, my, my own analogy for it. But but the way they explain it 
is a very important foundation in general in, in understanding how to approach these kinds of things. So here's my own analogy for, for, for the understanding of this. Parents have unconditional love for their children. Baruch Hashem. This means that no matter what transpires, no matter what takes place, even under the most challenging and difficult circumstances, parents love their children. It's called an avosh eina tluya bedover. That means not dependent upon anything. We love our children. We would do anything for our children. Okay. We're also supposed <laughs> to do our best to educate our children. We're also supposed to do our best to make them upstanding, upright, moral, and ethical, physically and, and mentally healthy human beings. We're also supposed to set them on a course and a path of life, which is, which is a good one. We're also supposed to teach them what it means to be good, kind, empathetic, compassionate human beings. Yes, of course. Some parents, find this very challenging. I'll tell you why. They find it challenging because they're unable to see that there's anything wrong with their own children. Just like a person may have a very hard time seeing their own negativity, seeing their own faults, right? The Baal Shem Tov actually says, the reason why Hashem shows us our faults in someone else is because it's too difficult to see in ourselves. In myself, I can't see it. In someone else, I can see it. In myself, I can't. Just like a person can have a hard time seeing their own faults, sometimes they have a hard time seeing their faults in their own children, which means you can have a child, right? No human being is born perfect. Every human being is born with internal challenges, with internal uh, uh, imperfections that need to be worked on. Sometimes a parent cannot properly identify the areas in which their child needs help because they love, they love their child so much that in their mind, their child is perfect. And that's actually unhealthy. By the way, it goes the other way too. Some parents are, are so critical of their children that it seems to them like everything their child does is no good, right? <laughs> that's because they're, they're sometimes projecting their own unresolved issues onto their children. Both ways are not correct. Again, maybe difficult, but, but both ways are incorrect. Ideally, a person is supposed to be able to have a healthy, honest, truthful sense of who their child is, know their areas of strength, know their areas of weakness, and teach and educate, and, and not just teach and educate, and equip the child with skills to be able to wrestle with their own inner demons and to deal with their own stuff, and to deal with their, with their own challenges, of course. Easier said than done, but, but this is the call. The challenge I, I want to harp on right now for a minute is that sometimes because parents love their child so much, it's difficult for them to accept that their child has a certain deficiency. What do you mean? I, it can't be, right? It's hard to accept that my child would, would have this challenge. I, I love the child too much. So you come to the parent and you say, look, in a moment of honesty, you need to accept your child has this and this particular challenge. So if you've ever had this conversation with a parent, you'll know at some point the parent will be vocal about their own struggle. They'll say, what, so, 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 so what are you trying to tell me? My child is no good? What are you trying to tell, in other words, what are you trying to tell me that, that, that I should love my child less? 
What are you trying to tell me? That there's something wrong with my child? You want me to, to see my child as a bad person? What's the answer? Chas We don't want you to love your child any less than you did until now. But there's something here that you need to do as a parent. You have an element of responsibility because Hashem has entrusted you with this child to take care of the child, to provide for him or her in this particular way. Your job here at this point is to see your role, to see your responsibility in this scenario and focus on that. So yes, keep stay uh, keep in the mind stay in the mindset of unconditionally loving your child absolutely and yet at the same time incorporate within that an understanding of the mission that Hashem has given you the, the place Hashem has put you empowered you to to help the child in this particular way don't start seeing the child as different in fact if you do start seeing the child as a problem child, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the child then uh, tends, to, tends to spiral in the negative direction because they're being seen this way. Don't see your child differently than you did until now. But, but and see your own role in what it is that you have to do in order to help your child. So the, so the, the Hasidic masters explained the Baal Shem Tov is, is with parent and child, it's, it's easier to understand. But the Baal Shem Tov is expanding the model, the perspective really to every single Jew and to every single human being. And what the Baal Shem Tov is basically saying is like this. If you see another Jew, if you see another person and the other person has challenges, negativity, evil traits, right? Like I said before, there are evil people in this world. The Baal Shem Tov says, pause and ask yourself a simple question. What is it that you see? When you see another person who is not observant, when you see another person who is, you know, again, in your opinion, a, a, a bad parent, a bad spouse, a, a, a bad employer, a bad employee, a bad human being, a, a, whatever it is that the challenge is. Says the Baal Shem Tov, one second, one second, hold the lens, freeze the lens there for a second and start dissecting. What is it really that you see? Do you see your own role here? Do you see what it is that you can do to help? Do you see a godly mission here that Hashem has put you in this position because there's something that you need to do? If that's what you see, then go ahead and do it. If that's what you see, then all that's necessarily going on is that Hashem has put you in a position where you can do something. But if that's not all you see, if you're not just becoming aware of your own ability to help or your own responsibility to protect or, or, or what it is that you can do, you see an evil person, nothing to do with what, is, what it is that I'm supposed to do or, 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 or supposed to protect. Or to give a more stark example, what about a scenario where there's nothing you can do? Absolutely nothing you can do. And yet you still see the evil, you still see the negativity in someone else? Says the Baal Shem Tov, if there's nothing you can do about it, why do you think Hashem is showing it to you? 
Why would Hashem show you something if there's nothing you can do? God doesn't do anything for no reason. Says the Baal Shem Tov, that's being shown to you because Hashem is telling you there's something you can learn from it to better yourself. You're seeing it in someone else as a way of Hashem teaching you there's a something within myself that I'm not aware of within myself that I cannot see within myself. I can become aware of it only through seeing someone else. But I want to go back and, and, and reiterate th th this idea. Because we're talking here that, that this teaching of the Baal Shem Tov talks all about the pair of glasses, the perspective that we carry through life. And the Baal Shem Tov is saying, look, like when you look at your own child and the child needs help, right? The child may have a terrible human tendency that certain children are, are just born with, a tendency to, to lie, a tendency to steal, a tendency to, to may Hashem protect us, just uh, uh, very harmful tendencies. If you're a healthy parent and you have this, and you have, you see this tendency in your child, you don't focus on the fact that your child is a bad person. You love your child unconditionally. What you do focus on is equipping the child with real skills and tools to overcome this. While at the same time, loving the child unconditionally. Says the Baal Shem Tov, the one who taught us, the Baal Shem Tov, the one who taught us the real meaning of Ahavas Yisrael, love for a fellow Jew. He says that sort of perspective extends to every Jew. When you see negativity in someone else, you're either seeing your role, you're either seeing your position, what you can do to help. Or if you're not seeing that, if you're seeing more than that, if you're seeing it in an area which isn't relevant to, to what you can do, then Hashem is, showing you, Hashem is showing it to you for a different reason. There's something about this that is reflective of you yourself. There's a mirror element here. You're seeing it be only because you have a part to this within yourself that you, that, that you need to correct. There's a great uh, anecdote I read many years ago about this man who comes to Hashem and he complains. And he says, Hashem, I don't understand. You, God Almighty, are the creator of all of existence. Yes, you are the one responsible for everything. You created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. You, the world that you created, this individual says to God, is so full of pain, so full of sorrow, so much anguish and suffering in this world. He says, Rabbeinu Shalolam, I see that you created a world with so much horror in it. I'm shocked that you're not doing anything about it. Come on, God, do something. And God says, I did do something. I created you. <laughs> and you're supposed to be making the world a better place. Get up and get to work. You see, the person's perspective is such that he sees so much negativity in the world and he's complaining to God. God says, what are you complaining to me for? You don't think I know what I'm doing? Hashem says, you got the wrong pair of glasses. If you're seeing negativity in the world, that means there's something you're supposed to do about it. Either 
the Baal Shem Tov is saying, if you can fix the negativity or protect from the negativity, fix and protect, or if you can't, fix yourself. That's the reason why Hashem is showing it to you. In the yeshiva language, they like to say, what do you do when you get to a question that you cannot figure out the answer to, right? What do you do when you get stuck? The question has driven you into a wall. Now what? In the yeshiva world, they say, change the question. <laughs> change the question. <laughs> on, on the surface, it sounds like a cop-out, right? Ask a different question. You go in a different direction. But there's wisdom to it. Change the question means refine the question, re-examine the question, reanalyze it, go dig deeper. You'll find the depth in the question that will give you an opening to answer. So the Baal Shem Tov is saying, you look around the world around you, you see people, you see things, you see experiences. What are you seeing? Well, if you're seeing, if you're seeing a calling, if you're seeing Almighty, if you're hearing Almighty God call out to you saying, where are you, Ayeko, in terms of fulfilling what you need to do, then go out and do. But if you're not hearing a calling, if you're not seeing, if you're not seeing something that, that, that Hashem is giving you to do, and you're missing the point. Hashem is not showing us things for entertainment. Hashem is not showing us negativity in other people just so that we have something to talk about at the Shabbos table. Hashem is showing this to us so that we can now take a hard look inside ourselves. There's always, there's always something to do when Hashem shows us something. Either we have to fix the world around us, or if God forbid we find ourselves in a place where we can't, we have to fix ourselves. Or in an, or in an area where we can't, then we work on ourselves and we, we make ourselves, develop ourselves even deeper. Okay. Let's go back to the story of Shem and Yefes. The Hasidic masters say, now read the verse again. Chom has come running out of the tent. He has seen the nakedness of his father. What does that mean? Explain the masters. That he saw his father lying without minus a few articles of clothing? No. Not just that. Chom saw Ervas Oviv. Chom saw his father Noyach. The man who had single-handedly perpetuated the human race and the animal kingdom and vegetation, the one who had literally saved the world from disaster, for whatever reason, not for now, for whatever reason, had fallen from grace. He was experiencing absolute humiliation. He was lying in his own tent, drunk, unconscious, and humiliated. One of the things that today's tabloid world is obsessed with is when great and powerful, successful people have embarrassing, humiliating moments, the tabloids salivate over this. Oh my God, it sells like nothing else, right? Look at so-and-so, an accomplished, successful person had a humiliating moment and it was Baruch Hashem captured on camera. Wow, you'll make millions with the story. It's a juicy story. The greatest celebrity of the time has fallen from grace. They've had some sort of a meltdown or a breakdown. And Chom, Avik, Chom the Torah says, sees this and he runs outside and he tells his brothers, what does he tell them? 
He tells them that the savior of the world is human. <laughs> the savior of the world is, is vulnerable and has fallen prey to the most base and, 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 and mundane elements of human nature. He's excited about it. Before we get to Canaan, Chom himself sees this and he goes to tell his brothers. Now listen to the next few words. Bayik, put yourself into the minds, into the heads of Shem and Yefes, two brothers. They've just heard a, a terrible story. They've just heard their father, their, their hero, their flesh and blood has disintegrated, collapsed like a pack of cards. His life has fallen apart. He's descended into the world of alcoholism, addiction, sin. He's fallen prey to the Yetzirah. Says the Torah, shame and Yefes, take the garment. They take the garment. They put it on their shoulders. They walk backwards and they cover the nakedness of their father. And then the Torah adds, they faced backwards and didn't see his erva. What's the Torah saying? That they didn't see anything? The Torah says they walked backwards and they faced backwards. So what does it mean they didn't see? It means they weren't aware. It means they were not aware that in their mind's eye, they didn't see a man when they looked at their father. They didn't see a man in humiliation and shame and disgrace. They didn't see a sinner. So what? They weren't aware that their father was lying there like that? They were aware. Obviously, they were aware. They were the ones who covered him. So what did they see? They only saw their own tafki. Only, they only saw their own calling. They said, they, saw, they said, our job is to protect his dignity as much as we can. And so they did. And once they did, it was over. They didn't talk about it. They didn't write news articles about it. They didn't discuss it at the Shabbos table. They forgot about it completely. They saw what it was that they had to do. They saw their own responsibility to their father. They fulfilled their, their own responsibility. They didn't see the nakedness of their father as an entity as it, within itself. They did what they had to, and it was over. And I'll tell you a great Hasidic story. All right? Here goes. So a Jew comes to the Mizritcha Magid. And he says, Rebbe, I'm having trouble controlling my eyes. I look in places where I'm not supposed to. Can you help me? The Mezuchah Magid says, I cannot help you, but I want you to go to so-and-so, this and this particular Jew. He lives in this and this particular town, and I want you to go to him. He can help you. All right, this was a very typical way Hasidic masters would sometimes answer people. So the guy goes and he travels to this particular town and knocks on the guy's door. He says, look, the Mezuchah Magid, sent me here, and uh, he said, you can teach me um, how, to, how to control my eyes, how to help not look where I'm not supposed to. And the host says, look, I, I have no idea why he sent you to me, but there must be some reason, so, you know, come on in. Anyways, the guy makes himself comfortable, and he stays there for a couple of days, and he's observing his host's daily activities, and he seems like a regular guy. 
wakes up, goes to shul, comes back, eats something, goes to work, works all day, comes home, you know, spends time with his family, he goes about his business. Anyways, he's looking for some kind of special quality in the guy, looking, 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 nothing. The guy goes to work in the morning, comes back at night, morning, night, day in, day out, very simple, very straightforward. Anyways, while he's waiting for some kind of magical experience to happen, the guy, the guest, is bored. <laughs> he's got nothing, right? The host is, is working for a living, but he's here on the Magid's dime, so to speak. So he's waiting, all day he's bored. So he learns and he says to him and he studies, but he's still, you know, how beautiful last year. He's getting bored. He starts wandering around the guy's property. Sure enough, he takes a walk in the backyard and, uh, you know, in the backyard, the back, the back, there's this huge wall. And he looks around and he sees there's a ladder. So he grabs the ladder, he leans it against the back wall, he climbs all the way to the top, and uh, he looks over the wall, and to his horror, to his horror, next door to this guy's home, there's a, a how do they say this nicely, a, a house of ill repute, a, uh, a brothel, next door. Anyways, he rushes down from the ladder, and he puts it away, and he waits with bated breath till the guy comes home from work. And as soon as he sees him coming, walking up the, the walkway, he rushes over to him and he says, you know, Reb Yankel, are you out of your mind? And the host is, excuse me, am I what? He says, ah, you're not allowed to live here. Chutzpah, what kind of a person are you? He goes, the host says, I'm so sorry. I, I, I don't know. What are you talking about? He says, do you know that you live next door to a, a home of ill repute? Do you know what's going on next door? Michael says, no, I have no idea. He says, I'm telling you next door, there's one of the spiritually darkest places in the whole city, bordering, neighboring on your property, and then you're living right there. You're not allowed to live here. Halachically, you're not allowed to become a big rub, you know? Halachically, you're not allowed to live here. Get out. You have to move tomorrow. Now I know why I live now. I know why the market sent me here. So Yankel, the host, looks at his guest and he says, can I ask you a question? How do you know? How do you know that what's going on next door? How do you know what's going on behind the property line? How did you discover this, 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 this place next door? And the guest says, what do you mean? There was a ladder. I leaned the ladder on the fence. I climbed up and I took a look. And the host looked at him and said, yes. And now I finally understand why the Maggit of Mezrich sent you here to me. He says, I'm, he tells his guest, I'm not telling you what you're saying is not true. Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. But I will tell you that I've been living in this home for 20 years. And it has never once entered my mind to even think that I should grab a ladder and lean it against the fence, the back wall of my property and, and climb up and see what's going on next door. It wasn't something I struggled with. It, it, it wasn't something I, I didn't do because I chose not to do it. It never entered my mind to look over the wall and see what's going on by somebody else. I'm perfectly happy with my life here. I have my hands full with my own life, with my own job, with my own family. Thank you very much. 
I never felt the urge or the need or even the curiosity to climb up a ladder and see what's going on over the wall. He tells the man, the Maggid of Mezvich sent you here to me for me to tell you this. Don't go sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. Don't go looking in places where you're not invited. Your own plate doesn't fall. You don't have enough between your family and your life and your own personal struggles. And what are you looking by somebody else? Mind your own business. And that's the reason why the Maggid sent you here to me. Have a great day. You see, what we allow ourselves to become aware of is to a degree, consciously or subconsciously, a choice we make. That's what the Baal Shem Tov is saying. You become aware you're processing someone else's negativity. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, Yankel is such a rotten human being. <laughs> the Baal Shem Tov. This isn't about Yankel. It's your own rottenness. It's our own rottenness. That, that, that we're chewing on. Says the Torah, shame and Yefes were tzaddikim. They were pure human beings. Ervas avim loiro, they didn't see a humiliated naked father. They didn't see that. What did they see? They saw what they had to do. They went to cover their father. And once he was covered, it was over. They tell a story about two Jews. They walk past a place. They walk past a body of water. There's a woman inside and she's drowning. But she's not dressed modestly. One Jew jumps in and saves her. Places her safely at the side of the pool or the river, or whatever it was. Makes sure she's okay and they walk on. And half hour later, the Jew who didn't jump into the water turns to the Jew who did and says, you know, I have to ask you something. It's been bothering me for 30 minutes. How do you do that? How do you jump in and save a woman when she's not, I mean, the woman was swimming. Save a woman who wasn't modestly, and not just say you have, to, you have to physically come in contact with her. How do you, you're a religious Jew, how do you do that? And he says, you know what the difference is? He says, I put that woman down at the side of the pool as soon as I finished saving her life, I was done. You're still carrying her around in your mind 30 minutes later. I did what I had to do. The Rabbanishalayim put me in a place where I needed to save a life. I saved it. Of course, that's what you have to do. But once it was done, when I finished my role, I moved on. He said, you're still carrying her around in your head 30 minutes later. Once shame and Yafas covered their father, it was over as far as they were concerned. Okay. Punchline. What about Knan? I read something. I... I, I I processed a part of the story that I never processed before properly. Rashi says this. Rashi says, when Noyach wakes up and he curses Canaan and he blesses Shem and Yefes, he says like this, Boruch Hashem Noyach says, may God, may God, the God of Shem be blessed. Quote. These are the words of Rashi. She'osid lishmor says Noyach. Almighty God is going to keep his promise to the children of Shem. Rashi says, you know what Noyach said when he woke up? Noyach said, one day there's going to be a land called Eretz Yisrael. 
and Canaan, the descendants of my grandson, my grandson and his descendants are going to inhabit this land. And in the Zechus, says Noyach, of this story, of the way my son Shem treated me, Shem and Yefes, but particularly Shem. In the Zechus of the way my sons, Shem and Yefes, treated me, I bless them that Almighty God will fulfill his promise and give the land of Canaan, what we call Eretz Yisrael, to the Jewish people. And that, my dear friends, I think, is the punchline of the story. It was, it is, at this moment, that we have the first time in the Torah where the Rabbanu Shlolem says, the land of Israel will belong to the Jews forever. The land will go from Canaan, descendant of Chon, to Shem and Yefes' children to the Jewish people. In other words, when Noach woke up and observed what it was that had happened, it is that the Torah makes this the first parking spot, the first place where the, where the, the idea, where the promise of Hashem to give the Jewish people Eretz Yisrael is articulated. Later, Hashem will promise it to Avraham Avinu many, many, many times. Hashem will promise it to Yitzchak and to Yaakov, etc., etc., etc. But their first place is here. That means when we talk about the original origin, that the idea that the Jewish people are the true owners of Eretz Yisrael, all of that begins here. In other words, what Rashi is what Rashi's saying is, in the end, this becomes the defining character trait of Jewish people. To own Eretz Yisrael, my dear friends, doesn't just mean to own, to, 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 to be politically and militarily in power, to, to, to live in a certain geographic location in, in, in the world. It means that first and foremost, but that's not where it ends. Losses Lemeseretz Kanan says, Noyach, look at this. These sons of mine who see no evil in others, these sons of mine who understand in every situation that Hashem puts before them that they have to fulfill the mission they have to fulfill and not see negativity where it's not their business. These sons of mine will own Eretz Yisrael. Or in the words of Rashi, In order to own Eretz Yisrael physically, you need a physical army and you need a physical military and you need a physical government and you need to, we need to physically protect ourselves from our physical enemies. And then there is, by, by Eden, there's for everything there's in Hashem. Then there is the soul. Then there is the spiritual element to it. What about owning Eretz Yisrael spiritually? What about a Jew being in his homeland in a spiritual sense? Says Rashi, that came from Noyach who blessed Shem and Yefes. For what? What did he bless them for? For covering him without seeing their negativity, without seeing his negativity. That means in a spiritual sense, the land of Israel goes to the Jew who is able in every situation in life to see why Hashem put them there and nothing else. To see what it is that I'm supposed to, that, 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 that I'm empowered to do Nothing else. And if there's nothing I can do about someone else's negativity, says the Baal Shem Tov, if you're clean, you won't even see it. In the end, our perspective on others is more about us than about them. 
Good people usually see good in other people. Bad people usually see bad in other people. Living in Eretz Yisrael in a spiritual sense means we've mastered this ability of, 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 of Erva Saviem Loiro. In the end, Rashi says, Noyach sees Canaan as the instigator of all of this. No, he wasn't the one who did anything, at least not physically. He just, he just got the ball rolling. He ran to his father, Chum, him and his father with two peas in a pod. Chum did, the nasty, Chum, Chum did all the nasty work. But the Torah sees in them the ones who, the opportunists, the vultures, to capitalize on someone's moment of shame. This is the trademark of Canaan. The two brothers who were able to help their father in the lowest moment of his life and not see in him a debased old man who was falling apart and couldn't keep it together, but instead to see him as the savior of the world who needed at this point in his life a blanket. Hashem says the descendants of these two will be the owners of Eretz Yisrael. Wishing you all a wonderful Shabbos and a wonderful Chodesh. We will please God continue these shiurim every week with the help of Hashem. Good Shabbos.